Welcome to a special season of the Neuroethics Today podcast, produced in collaboration with the International Neuroethics Society, or INS. In 2021, the INS held an annual meeting focused on the theme of social justice and neuroethics. In this special season of Neuroethics Today, we will revisit some of the major themes from that meeting with the help of some incredible guests. Join us for an exciting glimpse into an INS annual meeting. Welcome to episode five of the social justice special season of Neuroethics Today, Environmental Neuroethics. I'm your host for today, Erin Morrow, and I'm joined by co-host Laura Cabrera. And in this episode, we will introduce the subfield of environmental neuroethics and explore themes of the intertwined nature of environment, community and health, storytelling, marginalization and more. For some perspective on these themes, we're joined by Rudy Taylor Bragg from Monash University and Dr. Judy Illis, Professor of Neurology, Distinguished University Scholar and Distinguished Professor in Neuroethics at the University of British Columbia. She's also the Director of Neuroethics Canada. And we're also joined by Louise Harding, who has completed her master's degree at the School of Population and Public Health, also at the University of British Columbia. We really appreciate you all joining us today. And I think we'll start off with a leading introductory question to Louise, um, just explaining a bit more um, behind the concept of neuro environmental neuroethics as a field. So in your perspective, what is environmental neuroethics? Thanks, Erin, and thanks so much for having us both. We're very happy to uh, be on the podcast today. For me, environmental neuroethics is about the ethical inquiry into the impacts of environmental issues on the central nervous system. And because of the disproportionate impacts of climate change on marginalized populations, it often brings a social justice lens or it warrants the bringing of a social justice lens and uh, deals with issues such as colonization and other forms of oppression and marginalization, which is where my interest comes into it as someone who's been working at the intersection of neuroethics and indigenous health. And I'll also, um, I'll say in this uh, first comment that uh, Dr. Illis and I are calling in from the traditional ancestral unceded territories of the Hunkaminam speaking Musqueam people, which is where the UBC Vancouver campus is located. And uh, that's a critical piece in us discussing in this conversation today because our situation on indigenous lands is a critical piece in environmental neuroethics. Excellent. I appreciate you sharing that with us. And I'm glad you touched upon the themes of social justice and marginalization. And I wanted to ask you, in your perspective, how can environmental neuroethics as a subfield right now become more inclusive and include perspectives such as Indigenous perspectives? I think thinking about who is at the front lines of climate change activism, in many cases, these are Indigenous peoples around the world. There are correlations between socioeconomic status and experiencing the negative health impacts of climate change, such as the neurological impacts. So giving funding and leadership and other growth opportunities to those people who are affecting this, to being the leaders and having the voice, voices in environmental neuroethics would be very powerful and inclusive and and making sure that we are being inclusive of those different philosophies they bring and the methodologies that diverse communities bring. And also broadening the scope of what we might even consider environmental neuroethics to entail beyond Western concepts. So for example, in the case of Indigenous peoples, you could think of how displacement from the land due to environmental reasons could lead to, for example, challenges maintaining languages and culture and the health effects of that on mental health or healthy brain aging for elders who are keeping up these languages and the mental health benefits of raising children in their cultures and languages. 
So I think being very inclusive and broad in what, what environmental neuroethics can do and what's within the scope and really staying centered on making sure there's that leadership from those who are most affected. I'm, I'm gonna jump in Louise, if, if I may, um, and also um, say my thanks to um, hosting this podcast, my thanks to the INS and Aaron and Lara for being our host today. You know, I'm so glad Louise, you talk about inclusivity. Um, I, I've been doing a lot of work on another aspect of environmental neuroethics recently on an edited volume that's about to uh, come out on neuroarchitecture and neurodiversity. Um, it's a, a series of chapters uh, in developments in neuroethics and bioethics that Elsevier has been supporting for us over the past few years. And what I've learned in being the editor-in-chief um, of this uh, of this volume in this series is what it means to be um, truly inclusive from the point of view of a marginalized community um, or a disability community. So we often in Canada think about marginalized communities as indigenous peoples. Um, and But what this volume on neuroarchitecture has brought uh, to my learnings is um, not only the importance of uh, integration, which seems so like us and them, so polarizing, but really true inclusivity where the values and perspectives and priorities of people who are both neurotypical um, and non-neurotypical really co-creating uh, definitions of environment, definitions of neuroethics, definitions of what it means to put those two concepts together and the safe spaces around those concepts that are not only, um, well, I use the word safe, not only safe, but also uh, a nurturing and enable people to thrive uh, and bring out their, their own cultural sophistications, knowledges, excitements, and, and passions into that space. So a little bit, um, uh, some new some new concepts that are coming to the fore through all of these activities around environmental neuroethics. Some I think that we anticipated and some very, very new. Um, and in fact, some of these chapters uh, in the volume have been written by people who are suffering with dementia, uh, people who uh, have a, um, are living with an autism spectrum disorder. Disorder is sort of the biomedical language. I don't think they would necessarily use it themselves. Uh, uh, and even others from the queer community who share with us what it means to have a safe and thriving space. Um, some uh, you know, where, where color and sounds and corners uh, and roundedness all, all come into play for really good, really good wellness, I think, and mental, mental health and uh, abilities. So back to you, Erin. Wonderful. I'm really glad that you've brought up these intersectional themes and kind of the evolving definitions within environmental neuroethics and also, you know, how we forge respect of, of safety and identity in one's environment. And leading off of that, I wanted to ask, you know, how can we learn from those whose identity is intertwined with their community and their environment? Earlier, we spoke with Rudy Taylor Bragg, who told us about um, community-centered identity and really including the environment in one's scope of identity. And I'm wondering if we can speak a bit more on that. I think, well, one th what Judy just spoke about is a, a really good example of, um, for example, if when we're thinking about environment in the case of architecture and its effects on the brain, you can think right away about people who there are much more affected by the environment that's more heightened. For example, you mentioned autism spectrum disorder and what we can learn from that and how the environment affects everyone and the, the studies that back that up and the effect on the brain. And for, especially um, in the case of uh, climate change, how indigenous peoples have a fundamentally different relationship to the land and, and this is why they're leading many of these movements against climate change and pipelines and so on. And they've had this knowledge around the health impacts of environment um, 
for millennia. And I think there's a lot to learn there if we can ex expand the scope of what counts as knowledge and what counts as evidence. You know, and just drawing off of that, Louise, um, I'm in the middle of reading a book called Bark Skins by Annie Prue. That's, mm -hmm. I'm getting me very excited. And, and in the context of this conversation about environmental neuroethics, so of course she doesn't talk about environmental neuroethics at all, but it's actually the way that uh, North America evolved uh, uh, from the takeover of lands from indigenous people to, to modern day, now I'm about halfway through it. But one of the things I'm learning so clearly is how um, the how in I think indigenous people historically have viewed the land and the climate and the environment as something that humans people need to conform to, whereas settlers and our modern Western societies have really viewed the land and the environment as something that has to conform to humans. Um, so, for example, you know, um, the moving of, of um, teepees and tents around that would go with seasons from high ground to low ground, uh, where, where the moose and bear, where the moose run or the fish run and the bears are, um, and being one with the land as opposed to the la land being one with us as humans. And I'm really learning so much about that and how cutting down trees and turning them into houses that are essentially four-walled boxes um, is, is really a, a fracture with oneness, with environment. And how you know, our brains interact with that, I think is something that uh, we need to be exploring uh, much more. And certainly in terms of all the mental health issues that we're seeing um, uh, really flourishing today and flourishing not in a good way um, among people, partly pandemic related, and we've all been boxed in. So there again, another environmental neuroethics issue. But that, that those sort of interactions uh, with land, with environment, and who conforms or who adapts and what adapts to the other, I think is a, a key question that we have a, a lot to learn from and a lot to learn from, in fact, from the communities who have been around uh, on these lands much longer than us. And I think we did hear about that in the recent project that I led for my thesis, which was uh, establishing an Indigenous brain wellness and mental health working group with 20 people who are interested in this question of what is the meaning of brain wellness in an Indigenous health context and whether mental health is included in that. And in our very first discussion, thinking about this question of brain wellness, land and environment were mentioned by many people. And it, it was a the, the wide scope of that discussion of the number of things that were related by people in the group to brain wellness. And this was a group that was uh, three quarters of the members, 15 of the members were identified as indigenous was it was much broader than what you would hear in a Western biomedical discussion of connections to brain wellness. And we didn't bring up environmental neuroethics. So I think it flips this idea here. We have some relatively new Western science showing the impacts, the neurologic impacts of environmental change on the brain, but Indigenous peoples have known this in a much deeper way. And I think your example speaks to that, Judy, as well, of the importance of environment to all aspects of wellness and the brain and central nervous system being just one example of that. Yeah. You know, as, as another ex example, um, something that brought environmental neuroethics as a concept to the fore is something that we um, we realized with Laura Cabrera, in fact, who's co-hosting this show this afternoon. Um, and it was with our work with the Tautan First Nation in Northern British Columbia um, around early onset familiar Alzheimer's disease, um, which is linked to the PS1 gene, a dominant gene. Um, and so if, if you have the gene, you will get the disorder. And through our many, many years of work with the community, in as much as we, uh, endeavor to use the concept of two-eyed seeing to bring indigenous and biomedical perspectives together um, around this uh, neurologic disease, this degenerative neurologic disease. 
And we heard over and over again the belief that even if there's a gene, there must have been an environmental source for this disease, um, whether it was um, a disease that the, the, the white man, the Scots brought to our lands in what's now called British Columbia, uh, or whether um, there was something that started to contaminate the water and the earth and the animals through the evolution of uh, what we say modern progress in terms of mining, uh, you know, oil production, eventually um, uh, fracking and, and so forth. And um, so that coexistence of knowledges and belief systems is also really important as we think about environmental neuroethics. Thank you both for that. And especially Louise, I appreciate you bringing up the incorporation and thoughtful inclusion of indigenous knowledge alongside Western science, you know, to really and truly value its contribution to what we know. Um, I think Laura might want to um, interject with a quick question here. Uh, I just wanted, it was more like a, yes, I agree with everything that uh, Dr. Ellis mentioned and just really acknowledge how much for some cultures, the environment is not just this place that we happen to, you know, live, work and play, but is really an integral part of, of us, of our constituencies uh, as selves. And I remember clearly from that project that she mentioned with the First Nations uh, community that for them, you know, when the environment suffers, they suffer. So I really, um, very deep uh, connection and I think in the replies that we got from from Rudy um, you know he really fleshes out this connection that at least in indigenous groups they have with the environment and this um, kind of a stewardship that these communities have in protecting the land uh, that they live in so I just wanted to emphasize that that aspect as well thanks so much Laura for that um, and kind of just leading off of those ideas, maybe Louise or Judy, you can speak to this from your work with the First Nations people. Um, but I'm wondering if you can expand a bit more on how storytelling might be able to enrich our perspectives in environmental neuroethics. So how might storytelling, for example, you know, communicate the needs of individuals or their communities who are impacted by changes in their environments? How can storytelling really help transform our academic landscape? So storytelling was an important part of that Indigenous brain wellness and mental health working group that I mentioned. And I should also uh, be explicit with uh, that I identify as a settler. I'm a first generation uh, British Canadian on my father's side and second generation on my mother's side. My family's from England. And in that project, we incorporated an Indigenous research paradigm, which has been described by Dr. Margaret Kovach and Dr. Sean Wilson and Dr. Linda Tuawai Smith and, and many others. And one important piece of an indigenous research paradigm is this incorporation of story. So, uh, which, which is quite different from uh, Western epistemology. And so one, one way that it can be important in neuroethics is uh, it's important for research with Indigenous peoples as an aspect of culturally appropriate and sensitive research methodologies. It's very effective for knowledge transmission and relationship building and other important aspects of research with Indigenous peoples. And we saw this in the project. We had three meetings with the working group involving sharing circles. And uh, sharing circles are an Indigenous methodology that really bring out storytelling. So we were exploring this question of the meaning of brain wellness and where we want to go with this as a working group. And by using the, the sharing circle setup, uh, each person was really listening to the person before them and thinking deeply about what they want to share. And a lot of what people shared in that circle was in the form of stories, whether it was about, many was about their own life, Connect, making connections to their own life and why the questions we were asking were meaningful to them personally, which, which tends to be seen a lot in Indigenous research methodology as well as uh, experiencing the self, bringing the self into research. And 
I, I thought it was a very moving experience as a settler seeing this, this um, very open sharing around the circle. And I think that what everyone can learn from this indigenous and non-indigenous peoples, people around the world is um, more connected ways of communicating in, in research or with in clinical settings, the use of stories and more uh, heart-centered and connected ways of, of connecting with each other. And without necessarily appropriating indigenous methodologies, we don't have to use a sharing circle in a, a way that is taking it out of its cultural and relational context to do this. There's lots of ways uh, through various qualitative methodologies in research, we can do this with other populations. We have a lot of knowledge to draw on in this. And for me, it really stood out as uh, someone in the beginning of a research career, as that's the kind of research I want to be engaged in. It's very exciting, the, the gathering of people with diverse experiences and telling stories about those experiences I found was really conducive, not only to developing content and pursuing a research question, but to developing relationships, sustainable relationships and action, working on action together. Um, it, it really supported that, that good process of the research as well. I love the concept of heart-centered, I have to say. You know, when we think about storytelling, another lens on storytelling is oral histories. And something that we learned through our work with uh, the Taltan First Nation is how oral histories became fractured around this uh, early onset Alzheimer's disease condition as uh, young people and children were taken away to re residential schools, um, starting, I think, in the 40s or 50s, Louise, correct me, all the way through the late 70s. Late 1800s. Late 1800s through mm -hmm. even the 70s, and how in this nation, what they came to share with us um, is that there had been a whole uh, break in the way that generations were able to speak about members of the nation being affected by this condition. And they had to, you know, refine the language around it, refine the stories around it, about the communities, how they were affected, about families, how they were affected, how people were affected. Um, and I, you know, I hope through the work that we did and we published a a comic book, in fact, a cartoon book called The Mind Thief that the nation asked us for that was really all about early onset familiar Alzheimer's disease, looking at it through the lens of children and youth to help them connect the dots from the past to the present and find their own language around uh, this history and uh, the connectedness between, between generations, both in terms of uh, well family members and those affected by this terrible disease. It's a great example of storytelling in disseminating the results of research because a lot of the way we write scientific articles there it's a you know impassionate presentation of evidence so examples like that a graphic novel story you also had a YouTube video from that project where you and Lynn Beatty told the story of the project and myself I found that really compelling when I was first learning about it you had photos of going into Taltan territory and I think that that's a good example a, a good uh, way of making sure that the results are getting out into communities and I think that can be critical you know going back to if environmental neuroethics is to be inclusive it's not only within the academic work of environmental neuroethics, but it's being inclusive in terms of sharing that knowledge and uh, continuing the conversations around that knowledge. So it's something like a graphic novel opens it up to the community to create conversation, to continue the conversation among themselves and be involved in that project in that way. And create new stories. Mm. <laughs> yeah, because that's that's the way we we naturally do it. And I think academia can fracture that a little bit in our pursuit of the the scientific method and bringing back in this storytelling piece can not that the scientific method isn't important has created amazing 
discoveries and advancements, but bringing back in this piece can bring in a really human piece. Yeah. That's great. I think it's wonderful that this work, you know, brings up new mediums and new ways to, as you were mentioning, disseminate this information and hopefully make it more accessible to a wider range of people to learn from. And I'm just curious whether within the scientific community or, you know, coming up as an early scholar, whether you experienced any resistance to these new mediums or were there any, you know, um, systemic, you know, boundaries that you may have ex might have experienced that um, contributed to resistance to getting um, the, you know, the, the stories out in this way? In my research project, one challenge I encountered was in the process of giving honoraria to the people who were part of the working group. So it was very important for us to honor the knowledge that was shared. And one way that we did that was through giving Indigenous medicines. And another way was through an honorarium. And we did that from the university. And there's a lot of institutional barriers. I think it's a bit different at each institution, but I have seen other scholars report on experiencing the same issue at their institutions. Um, it was uh, tricky going through this process of rather than being able to just, for example, um, give someone um, a check or cash, you have to go through the university human resource system, which requires things like sharing their social insurance number with you, which can be overstepping in cases, asking for that amount of personal information. Um, no, no one, um, everyone agreed to give it and was very gracious, but it, it did feel uncomfortable asking for that amount of personal information from someone. And especially in the case where we are trying to decolonize this area of brain research and neuroethics and what entails this, but it was fundamentally within the university and it really highlighted that aspect. Um, it was the, the forms they have to fill out are took, take a lot of tries, um, even for people who filled out very similar forms before. And that did create some strain. I, for me, I was trying a lot to um, fill out the forms for people where I could provide as much support as I could, but there is a lot of personal information in there. So luckily, I, I spoke about this with a lot of my classmates, other graduate students who were experiencing the same challenge. And fortunately, the Indigenous Research Support Institute here at UBC has, report, has released some new guidance to support that process. Because in, in other ways, it was a very smooth process. Um, neuroethics was a really nice base for the project because neuroethics doesn't come with rigid methodologies and frameworks, but rather a more pragmatic and open approach to what entails neuroethics, who can do neuroethics, and so on. So um, that, that really was the only piece for me that uh, highlighted that challenge of doing this work within the institution. Though I did similarly as well, the, the process of analyzing the information from the working groups is another important piece. And that was where the indigenous research paradigm was really important, which is working with indigenous knowledges. We need methodologies that are uh, that fit into an indigenous uh, into indigenous epistemologies for for analyzing the information, and I came across a a methodology called reflexive reflection, which I applied uh, to this process. So rather than a Western qualitative analysis process, it's uh, it was created by Lavalie and Sasakamus. And, and published just last year as a decolonizing way of working with data from indigenous peoples and really focuses on contextualized information, relationships, uh, going back and speaking to the people who's, who shared the knowledge in the first place and the subjectivity of the researchers. So reporting rather, rather than trying to report on an objective view of what was discussed in the working group really leaning into that the summary was about my subjective experience as a settler, as a, re, as a master's student, 
having a background in neuroscience and indigenous studies and nonprofit work of my experience in the group. So those were those are two two places that really stood out for me. I think that UBC for sure has progressed a lot in terms of working with indigenous peoples. And I've seen that while I've been at UBC to decrease that really difficult tension that really peaked in the negative history, uh, the exploitative history of research with indigenous peoples. Thank you for that, Louise. And I'm, I'm happy to hear that you know, using these flexible methodologies was a more productive way for you to examine these research questions that you were able to really get at the most important questions in your work that way. Um, now, just switching gears a bit, I want to ask both of you what you think that environmental neuroethics add or can add to existing climate advocacy efforts. I know, Louise and Judy, you spoke about including, for example, neurodiverse and other marginalized populations in the conversation about brain health and mental health. Um, do you have any thoughts as to how we might be able to translate this to areas of climate advocacy as climate change accelerates? Oh, I'll just jump in and say that um, the more that we make linkages between climate change, particularly the adverse aspects of climate change, um, and their effects on brain health, wellness, uh, burden of disease as it affects people with neurologic and mental health conditions, um, the stronger the case will be for looking and taking care of the earth and our, our planet for all, all people of, of all backgrounds and communities. Yeah, Louise? Yeah, I think tangible empirical evidence of yeah. this it can be really powerful to the policymakers and others with power to enact change. So speaking the language through these very systematic studies that show the direct links can be um, lead to change in that way. And I think the ethics part, bringing the ethical lens on climate advocacy is really important and powerful. So that really considers things like marginalization, our existence on indigenous land, that social justice lens. I think that that lens at a really nice piece that a purely neurological science view on climate advocacy doesn't necessarily have. And that's where neuroethics really came from is making sure that that ethics piece is there as we have innovation and emerging evidence in the neurological sciences. And kind of the flip side of that is I think that neuroethics engaging in conversations around climate advocacy can support the field of neuroethics itself. So at, a, at the most recent INS meeting that we're talking about today, there was the theme of social justice and that has been a small and growing part of neuroethics. And I think environmental neuroethics, because it has such a big focus on social justice, can help that, that field, that, that body of work that has been growing to really come to the forefront and, and uh, those scholars who've been working on that to uh, use their voices in this case of thinking about the environmental effects, uh, the effects of of climate change on the brain. So uh, let's start with this question about what can neuroethics learn from indigenous communities? The, the entire concept of neuroethics, because it's so new, um, you know, and it's really rapidly changing with things like, you know, with, I guess, the accelerated impacts of, um, the climate crises um from an indigenous perspective i think recognizing that there's a lot of wisdom in like thousands of years of history it kind of lessens the distortion that can come with this polyphonic cacophony of voices um that we kind of find ourselves in in these rapidly multicultural societies and that's not to take anything away from it different perspectives is a strength and it's something that should definitely be recognized but it can rapidly distort a lot of the messaging that can 
come through um, underlying the perspectives because Indigenous perspectives, you know, we do find kind of ubiquitous um, themes that 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 connect around the world and certain words like sustainability, reciprocity, strengthening. Um, I feel like they embellish a really high quality of meaning to concepts of neuroethics. Yeah, thank you from from that for adding that and giving us some uh, insight into you know some of the things that the neuroethics can learn. Um, I think one of, one of the interesting concepts that I uh, have seen when I look into you know the way indigenous communities um, kind of work around is uh, compared to at least most of the, the rest of society it's a much more communal sense. Um, so what what do you think we can learn from that perspective of being being a community rather than being isolated beings? There's, there's strength in our surroundings and um, recognizing that, you know, kind of out of our own little bubbles, um, that ha sharing and, you know, that, that again, that, that, that theme of reciprocity, um, it, it, it is it is one that strengthens our our resolve and and being able to share ideas with one another and work together as groups of people to be able to tackle problems that are multifaceted with multifaceted solutions is something that goes without saying that makes sense because we can't just rely on a small group of people, one person to, to solve all the problems of the world. That's, it doesn't work. Uh, there's too, there's too much to do. And, you know, we, we, people are inherently diverse and you know, across the world and even within, you know, within countries there, there's, you know, there's so much diversity that should be recognized and being able to celebrate that while also honouring the history and the wisdom that we, you know, it, I mean, in, in, in Indigenous perspectives, it, it can often be, I guess, historically speaking, it's, it's, it's a lot of the time being ignored um, or not given the, you know, the kind of light of day that it probably deserves. Whereas, broadly speaking, we have so much collective knowledge now that has been so rapidly developed in the, in the past few hundred years and strengthening that with historical implications that have, you know, I guess uh, concurrently been ignored is something that is only going to contribute positively to these discussions going forward. Because again, sustainability is a theme of indigenous cultures. And if we want to incorporate sustainable practices that are knowledgeable about the places in which they come from, then they're voices that need to be listened to in problem solving things that are going on around the world. I think you mentioned uh, sustainability a couple of times now, and I think it's an important concept from the point of view that um, the way um, indigenous communities interact and um, see their environment. So could you elaborate a little bit more about what is the importance of environment from uh, indigenous perspectives and the type of connections that you think um, we can learn um, from? Uh, so, I mean, the, the, the entire concept of environment is probably best, I guess, um, visited in, in the, the concept of country. So at least for, for me and, and for, for where I'm from, um, it's a kind of shared sentiment 
for my for well, for most people that I know, uh, most Indigenous people that I know, and particularly in my community, the 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 concept of country is talking about um, you know, usually where we're from, and it 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 often will reflect on the sentient um, symbiotic concept of land that we live on and with and in and are a part of. And that's why there's, I guess, been such a friction between um, uh, Western conceptualization of, of land and Indigenous conceptualization of land particularly in Australia, because there's this kind of age-old um, kind of argument between, you know, we don't own the land, the land owns us, we're a part of the land and we're here to serve the land because that's where that, that that's that's our our blueprint for the future. And if we're not sustainable in our actions, then what hope do our children have? And this is where I'm kind of getting out with the, with the ideas of sustainability for the future is that if we buy land and clear it to have a farm where cows can live and we can grow crops and things, that's great. But we often see that there's consequences to that, such as, um, you know, a lack of trees leads to a litany of issues uh, going on like where people find drought and and like they're, they're all of a sudden their cows get more diseases and their crops start yielding worse and worse growth and the nutrients in the soil start to disappear and it's all these things and you know there's been um, huge restoration projects in farmland in in New South Wales which has seen amazing results only in 20 years or something of 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 working it and um i got a little bit of news coverage recently because they're starting to see all these benefits to the their livestock and their the things that they're growing there purely just because they've done some restoration of um of forestry and trees and things like that so i guess it's you know looking after the land and understanding the land and particularly understanding you know somewhere with an environment that can be really, really unique. Um, and in the case of Australia, it's, you know, incredibly diverse um, biospheres all around the continent, you know, from mountains that are Arctic and have you know, heaps of snow and everything and, you know, vast sprawling deserts that have pockets of, water and greenery and things really really kind of spread out through you know hundreds or thousands of kilometers away from each other um, to vast grasslands and woodlands and tropical rainforests like it's a it's a unique continent in the sense that it really does have so many so much diversity and it's really difficult to kind of know what you're doing if you don't know what you're doing and you look back through settler journals from the 1700s 1800s and they're kind of learning the hard way and uh, we're still learning you know um as a as a collective because so many of our indigenous cultural practices were banned and lost and all, a lot of that knowledge wasn't able to be passed down because of displacement or because people weren't allowed to talk about it and now we see these incredibly ferocious wildfires that grow, you know, most summers all throughout the country and are accelerating the world's most rapid loss of biodiversity in this continent, which for some, you know, this is a country that prides itself on being so forward thinking and so progressive. And here we are with all of this, you know, with the, with the world's greatest biodiversity loss in the past 50 years or something, it's just, you know, it's, it, it, it's heartbreaking, but it's also something that needs to be looked at with a 
an objective lens to be like, well, how can we do something positive about this? Yeah, definitely. I think one of the questions that I have for you was, um, you know, how examining that historical um, kind of mistreatment of well, not only of indigenous communities, but as well of, of, of the homes of the land that you were living with this displacement and and how that context is important. And I think you already shed light into how um, bringing this objective lens in, and looking into kind of history to learn from it and, and you already kind of provide some small examples of how little progress or, or how some progress has been made in the area. So um, is there anything else you would like to add in, in that uh, perspective of examining that historical background? How could it help us in the future? Yeah, well, understanding the history, particularly for, for the broader community, um, perpetual mistreatment is kind of... Uh, you know, it's kind of been the status quo uh, for Indigenous people in this continent. And, you know, that disruption to country, that disruption is so, so consequential because, as I said, the the conceptualisation of country through an Indigenous lens is that it is sentient. And we've seen this in Māori communities where they've actually managed to get um, recognition of sentience for some of their rivers in New Zealand and that in itself has awarded those rivers rights that are akin to human rights and so when we start to see this respect given to our environment we can start to reform that symbiotic relationship which you know when we heal our, our country you know we heal ourselves because we're creating sustainable practices for ourselves and for our future. But when we talk about disruption, understanding this historical implication, understanding that there's a disruption uh, that is consequential to the degradation of country, such as the, de- the, the disruption to our totemic relations. So a lot of Indigenous people, uh, a lot of Indigenous cultures have... Um, totems and my family totem is Warringah the Wombat and um, I guess in a traditional sense you know we wouldn't be allowed to uh, eat the animal or kill the animal or anything like that Um, it's it's got really really strong spiritual significance there but in a practical sense you know that's how you can mitigate the extermination of, of animals because you're just saying, you know, like through these kind of creating these totemic structures, you're saying you 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 you're saying no, these animals have to be protected. They they can't be over consumed or over killed or, you know, you only take what you need. And again, like you know, then you have people who are also looking out for these for these totems and. It creates a, a culture of sustainability. And when we lose these animals through, again, this rapid biodiversity rate loss, then we start to lose these totemic connections. You know, we start to lose our cultural practices. If we lose through bushfires or through flooding, through rising sea levels, if we lose our, 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 our country, then we lose our cultural connection to that country and if we have a a culturally significant space where we have creation stories or we have uh, stories about um, you know how that country came about or you know things that happened there that help teach us about you know what to do and what not to do there's a lot of places that are you know really practical in the sense that okay that 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 swimming hole is actually really dangerous because there's a sinkhole at the bottom of it and you know there's a a creation story about you know don't go swim in there because people die and those things are passed on orally as part of cultural practice and you know if we start to lose those those cultural sites then we start to lose what you know no one's going to be telling those stories anymore so we start to lose them as well and they're not the, 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 these are not new concepts 
this is a, a, a frequent consequence of the perpetuation of colonization. When we look at colonization as this, as this, this relatively damning implication for indigenous people around the world, then we can start to really kind of put it there as a figurehead that we can say, well, you know, these ongoing things like the the degradation of our country, the you know, the greed that is con and 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 overconsumption that is con contributing to the climate crises that we're rapidly recognizing every single month that goes on and not doing enough about it collectively. We're we're seeing these as a byproduct of those colonial institutions that were established two to four hundred years ago around the world and a lot of it has to do with ignorance because if you understand you know in the western part of victoria down here in in australia if you go there you get periodic bushfires and those those um those forests there they're designed to burn down and a lot of their seeds can't germinate unless they have the smoke or the fire that comes through cleanses that country and allows for fresh growth to come through and that particular pocket of the world is is specifically engineered over tens of thousands of years to, to hundreds of thousands of years to do that that's how it grows that's how it, it thrives is through that that cycle and of course, it only makes sense to kind of go, hey, maybe don't put your house in the middle of that forest because every single year it's going to light up. And of course, when people come to this land as aliens, they don't know it, they don't understand it. And then, you know, rapidly people start dying because they're, they're, they're doing things in this unfamiliar territory. And it's this, this ignorance that, that is being perpetuated that you know it's confounded by greed we know this but to see these things and recognize these things and at least bring them into light and have a discussion about them is what is going to afford us the opportunity to be able to then start to recognize well how can we rectify this so we can have a more positive outlook for the future I think, uh, I mean, obviously you right now really highlighted the importance of storytelling in um, kind of in indigenous communities. And certainly one thing that we've seen in the past is this view that um, traditional knowledges were somehow uh, not as objective as some of the more kind of, you know, Western scientific knowledges. And I think now we're really coming to terms that some of these more traditional knowledges even though you know they, they come from this oral tradition, they do have the power of, as you said, many years of history and a reason to be there through the community to either you know to prevent danger or to uh, promote uh, sustainable practices. So hopefully, as as you mentioned, we can we can find a way to um, bring back those type of uh, practices and and really see them as a way to enrich our traditions, not only indigenous traditions, but also for the rest of us that don't come from an indigenous community to really learn from these other knowledges and, and continue enriching our perspectives. Now, let me <coughs> shift, gears, um, um, uh, shift gears a little bit here with a different question. Um, so how can environmental neuroethics become more inclusive? What would be your perspective on this? Um, well, incorporating the ideas of, um, of storytelling is one, is one way, um, and understanding first nations histories. I mean, even talking about storytelling as a, you know, it, it's a really, really poignant point that you make saying that it's, um, it is quite often overlooked in a scientific capacity. And the thing is like, I mean, I have a, you know, my direct, um, my direct ancestor was recorded 
pointing out over Nam, over Port Phillip Bay, and and saying, you know, my old people used to hunt kangaroos and emus out there, and thousands of years or hundreds of years ago thousands of years ago you know like there was ice ages and they it was only mapped in the past 20 years or so that there was actually riverways that used to be there and you don't get to you know hundreds or thousands of years of um of continuous oral history and culture without being objective to a really strong sense because you know it's when you're passing these stories on they you know they might get changed here and there but i can only imagine what it's like for however many generations of people to go out to this huge bay and look at it and be like what do you mean we used to hunt kangaroos and emus out there but because all they have ever known all their parents or their grandparents every you know all of them have ever known is that it's just a bay and it's you know it's when when I kind of learn this 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 history and this is you know my inheritance that that I learn I read it in books and because of the disruption as I said that that was caused again by this you know there's this colonial this colonial infrastructure that that still exists in this country when when I read about this, I, you know, it's, it starts flicking over things in my mind because I go, Oh, you know, this, it, while this storytelling narrative is novel in scientific practice, it goes beyond qualitative and quantitative research. It implies meaning across several levels, like direct meaning, implied meaning, indirect meaning, hidden messages, and it can be presented in a variety of ways, like such as an anthology is a really, really effective way of, of, of storytelling in, in scientific papers. And that needs to be given a more widely accepted platform because it's conclusive with Indigenous methodology and conceptualizations. And if we talk about being more inclusive as a, as a society, understanding those perspectives, re respecting them is absolutely fundamental you know understanding the history of what actually went on in recent times you know we're starting to see it in a lot of news publications in Australia and I think understanding it and talking about it and having a really really a real truth telling about it not not only about things that people experience on a day-to-day -day, but also the historical things that have often just been swept under the rug you know genocide in many forms be it massacres or child removers or bans of cultural practice it's recent history so when you ask you know how can people be more inclusive ask questions listen learn sustainable practices and natural for indigenous diaspora around the world so encouraging first nations independence and sovereignty supporting their businesses supporting their traditional food sources uh, first nation farmers who grow them like their own foods, their own traditional foods, they often carry carbon deficits, significant carbon deficits. And if we dedicate more infrastructure and agricultural land to First Nations farmers who can grow First Nations food and we create more of a demand to eat this food and consume this food, we, we will see better outcomes environmentally as a result of that. And that has to do with creating that and fostering that as a culture that we all share. Yeah, definitely um, important points of view that you bring in in terms of how we can, or how environmental narratives can become more inclusive. Well, I think uh, we covered the main points of our um, episode for today, but just before uh, kind of concluding, is there any other kind of general thoughts in this uh, intersection of, you know, environment, indigenous communities, neuroethics, uh, well-being that you would like to, to bring as a closure? Well, I, I guess much like other groups of people around the world, um, <clears throat> you know, one word that's synonymous with the climate crisis is anxiety, you know, particularly the consideration of which, you know, when we consider our future, collectively um, 
as, as humans. And at the moment, there's many Indigenous groups, particularly island-based peoples that, that, you know, such as the Torres Strait Eight, for example, uh, with their Our Islands, Our Home campaign, they're actively are, like trying to bring awareness to issues associated with rising sea levels. Uh, many of these people, they're facing cultural extinction with with things like rising sea levels and you know the bushfire crises down in this you know in the rest of the 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 mainland continent of australia they're accelerating these this biodiversity loss and as as i said our cultures are heavily intertwined with natural environments and that loss means the loss of cultural wisdom and identity and it's understanding that you know there's going to be multifaceted responses to this because we're going to have to and it comes back to treating the you know the the symptom not the problem you know it's it's the same thing we're, we're going to have to look at this multifaceted as a as a as a collective particularly from a from a psychological perspective we're going to be looking at the 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 psychological implications of the anxiety and the and the the distress caused by this you know these these crises that we're facing but that's a symptom. Uh, we need to also be looking at the problem, which is addressing these actual crises themselves. Yeah, and, and I think just to strengthen the point uh, more, of course, from, from an academic, I guess, more um, neuroethics research perspective, I'm really fascinated by this idea where neuroethics, we tend to talk about identity as you know something that is about me, about oneself, uh, with maybe other type of ethics, uh, like your ethics, you think about more, my identity is built in, in my community of others. But in the indigenous perspective really brings all kind of together because it's not just me, it's not just my group of people around me, it's my environment is part of how I build my identity. And so I think, um, you know, as we continue, uh, working in, in neuroethics, including this is certainly a key part, not only because of the anxiety that it creates, but also because of, of, of the opportunity that it provides us to really create um, maybe approaches to use that as a to the benefit of people, right? Um, to kind of build into what you say, solutions to these problems that we have created that have displaced people and that are threatening their environments. Um, that is such I often, an issue. I often kind of conflate, um, you know, indigenous indigenous well-being with uh, like this kind of sore foot analogy. Because for for me, you know, it's it's really important to understand things individually, but it's also really important to look at the bigger picture at the same time. And for me, that 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 idea is like really really perfectly summed up in the idea that oh you know i uh, i got a sore foot so i, I go to the podiatrist and the podiatrist gives me these new shoes but all of a sudden you know the shoes are working great but my back's really sore and why is my back really sore oh it's because for the two weeks that i was waiting for my podiatry appointment i was walking a bit funny and it's sent my back a little bit crook so now i gotta to go to the chiropractor and you know it's this kind of like uh snowball of, <laughs> of problems that we go to all these individual specialists for and you, it's 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 very very similar with indigenous conceptualization yes there are problems on an individual level and you know those problems can be dealt with but we need to be looking at the bigger picture as well because at the end of the day like our entire lives are symbiotic and they are heavily influenced by external factors across the board you know we can walk outside and have a bird cooney on our shoulder and all of a sudden the day is ruined you know <laughs> this is my favorite suit <laughs> and it's like oh we're like we're interacting with our environment our environment's interacting with us it's 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 there's a reciprocity there and and you know the ways that we impact the world around us is very very similar with the ways the world impacts on us and understanding that that bigger picture is so crucial to be able to understanding how to conduct 
not only, you know, planning for our day-to-day, but also being able to kind of conceptualize solutions for really big, big time problems. And I think there's a little bit of friction there that kind of happens there as a result between kind of a lot of Western conceptualization and a lot of indigenous conceptualization, but we're starting to see these barriers break down a little bit day by day and being able to understand that, you know, the changes that we make on an individual level inevitably impact the world around us, be it our family or our house or our our backyard or our local forest or whatever, you know, it's, it's, there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a, a big shared circle there and we're all part of it and understanding that and being considerate of that is really, really important. Well, thank you again so much for joining us today, Rudy. Again, we're very, um, you know, thankful for for all these new perspectives that you have brought, and we, you know, we hope uh, and wish you well, and and hope that you know we might be able to continue our interactions um, with you and learning more from uh, indigenous communities in general. I think we have a wonderful conversation, and I think. Uh, Luis and, and Dr. Illis for joining us in this important conversation and really looking forward to where the field of environmental neuroethics goes, uh, goes from now. Thanks so much to both of you for having us. Thank you. themes and conversations have piqued your interest, check out the International Neuroethics Society website, where you can find recordings from all 2021 annual meeting sessions. Speakers from today's episode can be found in the session titled Environmental Neuroethics, Social Justice, and Steps Ahead. Did you find this episode particularly interesting or have something to say about the topic? We want to hear from you. We encourage our listeners to chime in and help us build community by recording a brief voice message. Check out the episode notes for a link to record your message. And to everyone, thanks for listening.